out there, welcome to our June 2021 episode of the Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center podcast here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Jonathan Haupt, Executive Director of our nonprofit Conroy Center and co-editor of the award-winning anthology, Our Prince of Scribes, Writers Remember Pat Conroy. My guest tonight is Colleen Oakley, a former magazine journalist and editor, and now the USA Today bestselling author of four novels, Before I Go, Close Enough to Touch, You Were There Too, and most recently, The Invisible Husband of Frick Island, which was the inaugural selection of the new Emily Giffen Book Club. Colleen was recently named Georgia Author of the Year for Romance for the aforementioned You Were There Too. The novels have been finalists for the Southern Book Prize and Close Enough to Touch won the French Reader's Prize. Colleen now lives and writes in Atlanta with her husband and their four kids and a menagerie of pets. Colleen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, this is uh, at best only going to be the second most exciting conversation you get to have this week. Uh, As we were talking about in our virtual backstage, you just recently did an interview on Instagram Live with Emily Giffen as part of of, uh, The Invisible Husband of Frick Island being the very first selection of the brand new Emily Giffen book club. Can you talk a little bit about what that selection and and what that uh, connection to Emily Giffen means to you at this point in in your still ascending writing life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, it was it was quite a shock. She announced it um, the day that my book came out on May 25th, that that she had selected my book as the the first pick for her book club. And I've been, you know, a huge Emily Giffen fan. I moved to Atlanta um, after college when I was 22. And I think that was year or, or not shortly thereafter that her very first book, Something Borrowed, came out. Um And, you know, I was just such a huge fan of hers. Everybody in Atlanta knew who she was. And then shortly thereafter, everybody in the United States knew who she was. And she was a, you know, a huge uh, women's fiction author. And about seven years ago, I met her at a book event for Patty Callahan Henry, a a release for one of her books. And I was just starstruck. I mean, I, you know, I, I recognized her immediately. I was so nervous to talk to her. And when I did, she could not have been kinder and more down to earth, which of course just made me even more starstruck. Um, but then, you know, I, I was had a, my first novel coming out and I told her and she immediately said, well, send it to me. And she has been truly a huge supportive mentor slash friend, um, you know, someone that I look up to ever since then. And, and I just couldn't be more, more thrilled um, to have her, her mentorship. That's so wonderful to hear. It, it is not always universally true that writers are kind to one another. This can be a, a bit of a competitive blood sport in some arenas. But there are those wonderful people who recognize early on, and thankfully so, that the, the spotlight is meant to be shared. And Emily Giffen is certainly one of those, as Pat Conroy was for me, as Patty Callahan, Henry, uh, who you mentioned, is, is as well. And in yeah. Patty's case, I think it was uh, another Atlanta writer, Ann River Siddons, who sort of was that uh, that first supportive uh, author that she met, who who was, you know, in a signing line experience, not very similar to what you're describing, where it just means so much to have somebody who's a little further down the path than you are, be encouraging and be supportive, whether it's a moment or, or over the course of a writing life, it just matters so much so validating to writers who are just starting on the path to have somebody like that in the corner. 
Yeah, it's really true. And, and I have to say that for me, you know, I've been in this business for six years now, and I have had only positive experiences. I don't know if, if I've been so lucky, but it just really feels all the authors that I have met, it you know, kind of have the attitude that the, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. And I don't know if I've been lucky, um, but I've just been so grateful to everybody who, who kind of, you know, reaches back and helps, helps writers up and forward. It's been great. That's wonderful to hear. I'm so glad that's been your experience. There's a well-known cookbook writer from Atlanta who uh, was, uh, was in South Carolina for a long time, recently relocated to North Carolina, Natalie Dupree, who uh, loves mm-hmm. this expression that uh, there's, there's grease enough in the pot for more than one pork chop. And that's how she has always described uh, <laughs> wanting to help other writers, particularly other cookbook writers, other food writers on their path too. It's wonderful to hear that that's been your experience. I love that. I love that. That's great. Feel free to work that in somewhere. That's just a good good Natalie Dupree expression. So let's go from, you know, what's happening in your writing life this week to uh, much, much further back, maybe all the way back, if we can go that far. Uh, As I mentioned in your bio, you were a journalist, but can you tell us a little bit about where your interest in writing in any form began? What, What really was the beginning of the arc of your writing life? Yeah, I mean, I, for as long as I can remember, have been interested in reading and writing. I know a lot of that has to do with my mother, who um, went back to college when I was very young and got her degree um, in education and then her master's in adult literacy. So reading and writing have always been very important to her. And honestly, as a kid, I just thought that everybody was an avid reader. Like, that was just what you did, was read books in your free time. (laughs) Um, and so it's always been such a natural thing for me. And I always, I mean, from, from the time I could talk and hold a crown, I told anybody who would listen that I was going to be a writer and I was going to write books. So, um, you know, it's just been kind of a lifelong, uh, thing for me. That's wonderful. It's great when it starts early, not that it has to, it's never too late for a writing life to begin, but it it sounds like you grew up in a house where that was valued and recognized immediately. And that's fantastic. Absolutely. You, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your, your time as a journalist and a magazine editor. What kinds of pieces were you writing? Who were you working for? What, what came out of that that you kind of carry forward into your fiction life as well? Yeah, so I started at the very glamorous Boating World magazine in oh. landlocked Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough, and um, I didn't know anything about boats, but it was really fun because I got to go test boats and then write about them as if I did know <laughs> what I was talking about. <laughs> um, and then I moved on to women's health and fitness, which is a little little bit more my speed and knowledge. Um, and then I, from there, moved to Marie Claire, and I did a lot of the culture stuff. I did book reviews, movie reviews, celebrity interviews, um, and that was great, great fun. I mean, you know, the, the book uh, reviews and, and author interviews were certainly the highlight of my time at Marie Claire. And from then on, I um, just started freelancing because, you know, kind of once you're in that world, you make enough connections that you can write for a lot of the, the big magazines. So I did a lot of health articles. I did a lot of relationship articles, um, some more author interviews, things of that nature. 
Um, and, and as far as, you know, I really do think it prepared me for novel writing because so many of my novels, um, all of my novels, I, I do a ton of research um, because even though they're kind of fantastical, uh, the premises are a little bit unusual and bizarre. I always like to ground them in real life, um, you know, science so that they're quite believable. So the research, um, you know, aspect of it, learning how to do that well and properly as a journalist, I think really helped propel my novel writing career. I, I, I think that's one of the defining characteristics that I enjoy so much about your novels. That there is this sort of outlandish scenario that it's at the heart of it, but it's always grounded in this realistic world and, and, and the research certainly is is part of what makes it so but i think maybe there's a there's another element to that too and that's this really wonderful compassionate portrayal of the characters who occupy your fictional world and i'm wondering if your time interviewing people famous or otherwise is reflected in that because you seem to be genuinely interested authentically interested in in other people and that comes through in the writing I am. I mean, I think my mom calls it nosy, but (laughs) I've always been wildly interested in other people's lives and stories and what makes people tick and what makes them the way that they are. I mean, one of my favorite things to do in high school and college was go to parties and not just for the the drinking aspect of it or the partying (laughs) aspect of it. It was genuinely to meet new people and find out their stories. Um, so that's always been a driving force in my life. And, and I love that now I get to interview people, find out their stories, find out, you know, stuff about them, but, but also make up my own based on, you know, observations and people I've met over, over the many years I've been alive now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have um, a fictional journalist as our point of introduction to, to Frick Island, and that's Anders, who is, who is a young journalist, just sort of starting out with great ambitions, sort of imagining he's going to cover these world-affecting stories, and, and that's not, of course, the case when someone starts out. So could you tell us a little bit more about him and sort of where he is at, at the point in his, his life, his writing life or otherwise, when, when we first meet him in the novel? Yeah, absolutely. So Anders is, you know, a young, recent graduate of journalism school. And I think like many young, recent graduates of journalism school, I know it was certainly true for myself. um, He thinks or hopes or wants to, you know, not only work for a really large paper like the New York Times or the Washington Post, but he wants to cover, you know, like world changing stories, war and politics and, and, um, you know, wants to kind of change the world with his with his reporting, um, but also maybe kind of win a Pulitzer and become famous while doing it. <laughs> um, and I think there's a little bit, well, there's a lot of naivete uh, kind of in that when you come out, first come out of journalism school, that you can do all of those things. Um, and then also a little bit of trying to, you know, not quite understanding necessarily what is important, right? Like, like you think that the Pulitzer and the awards are are what maybe is important or that's what drives you um, in the beginning. So I think there's there's a long journey that Anders needs to go on there to figure out what's, what's really important in life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It's, uh, but the journey in, uh, in the moment that we encounter him, the journey is taking him to Frick Island, which he seems to know very little about. And he has uh, not a terribly exciting assignment, one to cover a cakewalk. But in, uh, in the author's note, you explain to us the, the origins of your fictional Frick Island being the very real Smith Island, the place that, that you visited uh, as part of uh, family vacations. Can you tell us a little bit more about your introduction to Smith Island, your fascination with it too, and how it became a setting for this particular novel. Yeah. So about, it was probably about 20 years ago. My grandparents um, were big adventurers, big travelers. They took my sister and I, we were so lucky to uh, to go kind of on all these trips around the world with them when we were teenagers. Um, And so we had been to quite a few places and, when I was a senior in college um, that summer, they said, well, why don't you guys this year just come visit us in Salisbury, Maryland, this very little town that they lived in. And we said, sure, um, mostly because we were, were broke and couldn't afford another vacation. <laughs> and they were paying for the fight. So, um, so we went to visit them, and they uh, said they wanted to take us on a day trip to Smith Island, which we had never heard of, um, which I think most people in America probably have never heard of. A lot of Marylanders have never heard of it. Um, and it's just this, you know, this really small uh, strip of land out in the Chesapeake Bay. It takes a 45-minute boat ride uh, to get there. You go 12 miles out into the Chesapeake Bay. And it's just you know, there's, I think when I visited 20 years ago, there were about 300 people living there. There are, there are many less now. Um, And it was just one of the most unique places out of all the places I had traveled um, that I had ever kind of stepped foot on because when you go there, there's, there's actually a book I've read for my research called an Island out of time. And it, that's genuinely what it feels like. It feels like this Island has been left in this certain time period that technology and uh, other out, you know, outwardly influences hasn't touched. I mean, they really live this very simple, idyllic life. Most people fish and crab, you know, they sit around and talk to each other for their entertainment. Imagine that, Um, (laughs) you know, it's just this really fascinating place. And, And when I was 20 or when I was in college, I just couldn't believe that people could actually live like that, right? It just blew my very young mind. And going back now as an adult for research for the book and now having four kids and living this very kind of, you know, harried, bustling life that most of us live, it became a lot clearer to me why somebody might want to live in the middle of nowhere on this very peaceful uh, strip of land. So a little bit different perspective as I get older. <laughs> it really does give you, uh, you know, such a, a wonderful setting to explore because it's, it's a small town, but it's a small town all the more unique because it is, it is an island. It's isolated and it's uh, sort of out of step with time, as you say which allows a lot of things to happen that, that make sort of central scenarios of, of the novel possible that sim- simply wouldn't be possible anywhere else. So exactly. it's, you, you've found a way to honor it in this story in, in multiple ways, but by giving it a story that could only happen in, in a place like that and, and telling the story that sort of captures the spirit of the real place as well. 
there were times uh, because I because I know from previous conversations and previous books how thorough you research. There were times when I was reading this book where I needed to stop and then go look something up and decide whether or not that was real or not. Uh, and <laughs> one example of that is the cake. The, the, the Smith Island cake is a real thing, and uh, yes. which inspires and it's the trick. <laughs> It looks delicious. It looks like a time commitment too. It's what is it? Seven or eight layers. It's it's a remarkable uh, geographic, excuse me, uh, geometric creation. Uh, yes. It looks looks amazing. But um, did you find yourself leaning into the reality of Smith Island or out of it? In other in other words, were you really trying to capture the idiosyncratic? details of the real place or once you sort of settled on the idea of it as your scenario did you really lean more toward what the story needed what the characters needed regardless of whether or not it had a had a component on the real smith island i think more of the latter i mean i I definitely used the island and its topography and you know like the careers of the people that that live on there as the inspiration and the base and then once I started writing the book, certainly, you know, I created the layout of the town and obviously the people on it um, and, and their backstories just completely, um, you know, out of thin air fictionally because I really did need specific things to, to be there and happen for the sake of the story. <laughs> well, let's delve a little bit deeper into what that story is uh, and the other protagonists who we have not yet introduced, which will let us uh, kind of dive into the meaning of the title. Tell us a little bit about Piper and where she is when Anders encounters her, where she is in her life. Yeah, so Piper is a young widow, actually, on Frick Island. She is about 22 years old, and she has she got married very young at 21, and she lost her uh, dear husband, Tom, in a boating accident. Tom, like most men on Frick Island, um, is a waterman for his living. He fishes and crabs um, to make a living. And he was out in his crabbing boat one day in a freak thunderstorm and is lost at sea and does not come uh, back. And Piper, in all of her you know, shock and grief, um, wakes up one morning and and continues to live her life as though Tom is right there beside her, um, going as far as to walk him down to the docks, uh, as was their ritual every day, um, and have their dinner every night at the One-Eyed Crab, or every Friday night at the One-Eyed Crab restaurant, the one restaurant in town. Um, so she's living, when, when Anders meets her, she's living with this delusion that her uh, dead, lost at sea husband is in fact right beside her and invisible. <laughs> and here's another example where there is sort of a real world parallel to this because you, if I remember correctly, discovered a story where not this exact scenario had happened, but but something similar that maybe had, uh, had prompted your interest in seeing where this might go in a novel. Yes, that- absolutely. So it was about, and some some of the listeners might remember this story. It was about four years ago, I want to say, and it was a pretty big news story um, out of Australia. A young, um, I'm sorry, an older woman who had been married for about 50 or 60 years 
um, very much in love with her husband, lost her husband um, in their home. I mean, he, he passed away of natural causes in their home. And in her grief um, and shock and denial that, that her husband had died, she left his body in their bed um, and continued to live life outwardly to her community and neighbors as though everything were fine, as though he were still alive, their life was great. Um, and it wasn't until, and, and forgive me because this is a little bit morbid, um, that a neighbor smelled something coming from her house that she was found out uh, that she had been doing this. So, you know, that's, it's a tragic, uh, kind of morbid, awful story. But to a novelist, it is just <laughs> wildly fascinating. <laughs> it's interesting to explore the forms that, that grief can take. And that's a very extreme story, obviously. I mean, there's no right or wrong way to grieve. Grief is, is inherently idiosyncratic, and people experience it in different ways and with different losses. And you've got this, this wonderful community where Piper and Tom are, are just beloved. And because it is small and contained and a little bit weird and quirky anyway, you know, this, this scenario can play out on Frick Island, or maybe it couldn't play out in Atlanta or anywhere else where there would be more people in, in and out and there would be more eyes on, on Piper and more questions about what she is or isn't doing. But you've really given it this sort of perfect place where it can unfold, except that in walks Anders and he's a journalist. He's got questions about this. He's not even sure if it's real at first, uh, which introduces a lot of humor into the novel. And this is something that, that I find to be true of your earlier books as well, even though there's always this, sort of sense of death and dying and risk, there's always a good humor to it as well. And I'm wondering how you balance those two things in your writing. Yeah, I mean, it is one of the biggest challenges that I have as a writer that I kind of present to myself because, you know, I write about a lot of heavy emotional topics, um, but I don't want to depress my readers. I don't want them to be, I don't want it to be overly maudlin or have readers crying on every page. Um, you know, I want to write kind of hopeful, uplifting books and find the joy and the light in all the darkness and the grief. And I think, you know, honestly, on a personal note, that's kind of how I handle um, hard times in life and grief in life. I always try to find you know, the funny, I mean, that's kind of how my whole family hand, I, I remember at my grandfather's funeral, which was devastating. We were all very close to my grandfather. I mean, we ended up telling stories about him and laughing so hard. We were, we were crying from the laughter. Um, and I just, I, I just want that for my readers too. I want them to see the humor um, in any given situation without being flippant and without you know, de denying the gravity of the situations too. So it's quite a fine line that often takes many revisions to, to get the balance right. Well, you've done it, regardless of how much work may go into it, it certainly pays off because it shines through in your writing um, to have this, this wonderful sense of optimism, even, even when it's viewed through the lens of much, so much of life's darkness and, and, uh, Pass and, and our mortality ultimately. Um, so you do that so well; it's really enjoyable to read Thanks. and to discover. Uh, but I'm wondering, 
how this plays out in your household when you and your husband are sitting around and there's yet another dead or dying spouse in a Colleen <laughs> Oakley novel. Does this come up? Is this a cause of for concern for Fred at all? Let's just say he sleeps with one eye open. <laughs> <laughs> he was um he was a bit concerned, particularly with the title of this novel, you know, The Invisible Husband. Why is he invisible? Um, <laughs> my mom, who's a big fan of my husband, uh, may or may not have asked me to send proof of life images to her. <laughs> it's good that she's looking out for him. I appreciate yeah, yeah. that. I'm sure he does as well. Well, let's talk about something else uh, that Anders discovers on this island. And, and, you know, he goes over to cover a cakewalk story and thinks this is going to be one and done and becomes immediately fascinated because there's so much going on on Frick Island. There are layers to the island as there are layers to the cake. But there's this, <laughs> this, uh, this, this conservation risk, there's this land loss risk that's going on uh, in the fictional Frick Island. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about whether or not that's reflected in the real situation of Smith Island and what kind of research you did in, into that. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the um, main things that um, that one of the main things I took from from Smith Island and, and a lot of the research I did there because Smith Island is is kind of known, you know, in the stories that have been written about it as the island that is sinking into the bay. I mean, I think like many islands due to climate change, it's um, it's really, you know, they think that maybe in 80 to 100 years, it might not be there anymore. So um, I wanted to honor that and be true to that um, in the book, but I also wanted to look at the theme of climate change and and look at the theme of, you know, denial. The people, a lot of people on Smith Island, and certainly not all of them, um, but a lot of people on the real Smith Island don't necessarily believe in climate change and don't necessarily believe that that is a threat to, to their livelihood to uh, the island. They think, you know, uh, oh, I'm sure they think a lot of different things, but some people think that, you know, maybe God is in control and everything ebbs and flows. And so while, while the waters might be rising now, they will certainly recede in the future and, and everything will come back into balance. Um, so, you know, obviously denial is one of the big themes of, of the book. And, and that was a, a great piece to weave in about um, the real effects of climate change on the real Smith Island. It's handled really well, and, and I want to be protective of, of the plot twists, particularly late in the novels, so I don't delve too deeply into you know, what, what happened and some solutions and considerations that are put forth. But it's, uh, it really is such a strong element of, of the novel and a, and a good way to tell that story you know, in a way that I think is going to be, for lack of a better term, digestible to people maybe wouldn't automatically seek out a novel about uh, land conservation on, on on sea islands around here. It's such a great risk, too. Uh, it's certainly true to our, to our neighbors in North Carolina along the Outer Banks as well. But here, too, as is, uh, is true in the novel, there are, are folks who simply don't want to hear the story or will deny it or will point you to conspiracy theories and all sorts of interesting 
you know, ways to uh, not talk about what we should definitely be talking about. And I think you found a really good way to insert it into the novel in a way that feels organic and important and vital to the plot. So I, I definitely appreciated that as well. And Anders, uh, you know, has, has a lot of interesting choices to make as he starts to discover what's going on in this island or what might be going on in the island. <clears throat> and he develops this podcast, uh, which grows, grows in popularity and audiences. And again, because of the, the isolation of the island and the sort of lack of, of some modern technologies there, the islanders are, are not aware that he's doing this. And it gets right. some big questions about responsibility of, of storytellers, responsibility of journalists or, or fiction writers or anyone else who uh, can chronicle or critique someone else's experiences. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to talk a little bit about uh, what Anders chooses to do and you know, whether or not that's an instructive tale or a cautionary tale in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a big question for a lot of journalists that they have to face, you know, if not once and many times over their career is um, kind of the ethics or the intention behind what story they're telling and the harm that it could do to the subject that they're portraying or, or you know, writing about um, and balance that with, um, you know, kind of the help, who it could help in the world, right? So I think there's always kind of that push and pull and, and everybody has to decide for themselves as, as a journalist or a reporter where their lines and ethical boundaries are. Um, for Anders being so young, I think, you know, he does maybe make some poor ethical choices <laughs> by, by not filling in um, uh, the the townspeople exactly what he's doing. He withholds some 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 truths, but I also think you know that's one of the reasons I made him so young because you know you have to like him in the book, and I think that ultimately you have to be able to forgive him for these mistakes that he makes. Um, and you know, hopefully, remember that when we were young, maybe we didn't always make the best choices. <laughs> But I do think in his defense, you know, altruistically, like as as the the save the world reporter he wants to be, you know, he really thinks that that all of these topics that he's hitting on in his podcast could ultimately be helpful to other people. He does seem to have very good intentions mixed with uh, quite a lot of ambition as well. And then. And then the joy of actually having an audience, which which he does not expect early on, but uh, but comes to over the course of the novel. Uh, but uh, I want to circle back around to something you said just a couple of seconds ago about, you know, this is this is really true of both Anders and Piper. They both commit lies of omission, uh, which have have run the risk of losing the sympathies of the readers. There's the the risk that when these revelations are made that readers are not going to follow them. They're not going to forgive them, to use your word. Did that feel risky when you were writing it? Did that feel like, like a difficult thing to insert into this novel? And again, I want to be protective of some plot twists so we won't delve too deeply into, into what those lies of omission are. But did the, did the act of writing them in, making them so central to the plot, seem risky when you were doing it? 
It did seem risky. It, it seemed, you know, it was necessary. I always knew that, that that was going to be part of the plot um, and part of the, the character arcs. Um, but I was always very aware of it and, and aware of the need to balance that with making both of the characters eminently forgivable. And so, again, you know, that's a fine line and took quite a lot of revision to get there. Um, but it was something that was that was at the top of my awareness the entire time I was writing it. It pays off. Uh, you do the pivot really well both times. You've got to do a, you know, almost one right after the other, um, and, and it holds up. We, uh, I, I certainly can't speak for every single reader, of course, but I, but I was willing to forgive. I was, I was certainly understanding of why they made the choices they made and the context in which they were made, in which those decisions were made, and, and the reveal is so nicely handled. Thank you. Uh, I mentioned, uh, oh, thank you. It was, it was a, a joy to take those rides with those characters. There's another character who we've not yet mentioned, uh, although we've sort of alluded to something that he does, and that's inspire the popularity of Andrew's podcast. And here I should back up one novel and mention uh, one aspect that I love so much about You Were There Too is the sort of running jokes about Keanu Reeves, uh, peppered shortly throughout the whole novel. And we get an equivalence on a slightly different scale in The Invisible Husband of Frick Island with uh, a weird camera appearance by The Rock, by Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about where these come from? Are you just sitting there writing the draft and thinking, you know, the strangest thing I could probably do is put in The Rock, so let's do that. Or does it, or does it come more organically out of the needs of the story? Um, the... <laughs> answer this the rock came about a little more organically weirdly enough because um i don't want to give anything away but i did need a very well-known large superstar that has a lot of social media followers and the first person that comes to mind when you think of that those parameters is the rock and i also happen to be a huge fan i think that he's he's so delightful and I like to think that if he ever found out that he was in this book and read it and read his small part in it, that he would find it hilarious and be tickled. And, you know, eventually we'd become fast friends. <laughs> How could you not? It's right. the logical conclusion of that line of thought. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just have a lot of fun. You know, for me, it's fun. I crack myself up um, kind of putting in these fun little pop culture references. And I actually have one. I was thinking about it today. I have one in my first book, Before I Go. My main character hates Sarah McLaughlin. Um, <laughs> and I actually have received emails. Of, like, people get very angry that I panned poor Sarah. <laughs> in the book but you know i love sarah mclaughlin like i i in my 20s in every breakup i listened to her cds over and over and cried into my mind so i'm a big fan it just so happened that my character in the book was not so <laughs> but um yeah i guess you have to be careful still what you write people get very offended <laughs> lesson learned i guess the, uh, right, the sarah right. mclaughlin partisans are not to be trifled with clearly <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit uh, more about what goes into creating the, the protagonists. 
in in a romance novel. Not that your novels are exclusively romance. I don't think of them in that way. But there's there is an element of that that sort of runs through the books, and it's important, essential in many ways, that the romantic leads from one novel not feel too much like the romantic leads of the next novel, and so on and so on, and that becomes difficult balance to strike for a lot of writers. But you do it very well. So how how do you get to Piper and Anders, and how do you keep them from being Mia and Oliver or any other pair of characters? How do you keep uh, the protagonist fresh when you're when you're creating them? Yeah, I think for me, like one of the things that I am very conscious of is trying to steer as far away from the cliched romantic leads as possible. I mean, none of my men have strong jaw lines and barrel chests and, you know, cleft chins. Um, <laughs> um, I just try to make them as real characters as possible that happen to be, you know, possibly falling in love or having some kind of love story as the, as the arc. Um, so I just try to be as conscious of, um, you know, cliches and steer clear from it. And that's really true in, in all of my writing. And, and a lot of times my, in my process, you know, I'll let myself kind of write all the cliches that come to mind in a scene. And then I very methodically go back and try to turn them on their head or twist them mm-hmm. or make, make it surprising or unpredictable um, just to, to, to specifically keep it fresh and make it feel like something you haven't necessarily read before. That's real wonderful advice, just uh, just in general, and, and to uh, for for writers just starting out. We get so many questions from uh, from writers at the Conroy Center in our workshops, and we have one going on tonight, in fact, uh, where people just don't want to intimidate themselves out of putting the first word on the page because they don't, they think it's sort of going to flow out as perfect. For what happens, the, the secret to writing a good or a good story, even a good is to write a bad one and then fix it and then keep fixing it over and over again. And, and yeah, that and takes to allow yourself, right, to allow yourself to write the bad scene and not, you know, not be so hard on yourself. Like, because <laughs> that's the hardest thing is, is, you know, you write a bad scene and you're like, well, this is terrible. I knew I couldn't do it, um, you know, and, and if you allow yourself to write that bad scene and go, this is terrible, but I know I can fix it. Um, then I think that's that's the key to writers who persevere and keep going, and ones who maybe write a write a first draft or write a chapter and never go back to it. That's exactly the difference between writers who start and writers who finish something. Is, is as you say, giving yourself permission to go through the process. For writers just starting out, the problem that some may encounter is they're comparing their blank page to a good page in a published book, and they're not really seeing every single thing that, that went into creating that. Right. Because that yeah. is sort of the invisible part of the process to them, to, to the reader. But I think you captured it perfectly just now of, of what it can be, what it should be, what, what uh, writers have to give themselves permission to allow it to be as well. Absolutely. And I even want to add that, that as a writer who's written four books and I know what I do and what goes into it, I'm even guilty of that. Like I read a really well-written book by somebody that I respect and I just go, well, how, you know, how did they do that? I can't believe it feels like it's some kind of magic that they were able to just 
churn that out on the first try. Like, you know, I can even not remember that they probably wrote 10 drafts to get it to that point. Um, <laughs> so it, it's a hard thing to reconcile and to remember and remind yourself of. It certainly can be. Uh, and for writers who've never been through it yet, who've never even made the attempt, it's difficult to understand, uh, which is why it's nice that, you know, if, you, if you're willing to go out and look for these things, process books that will share with you earlier drafts of well-known passages, you can kind of see the progress over time and understand that, that it's the rarest of scenarios that something flows immediately out of a writer as perfection or comes from yes. any artist is, is immediately perfect. But there is a process, process that is often unseen in the final product, but it's part of the creation nonetheless. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Talk a little bit about what, uh, where your process begins with these novels. For, uh, for Frick Island, for example, was it setting? Was it characters? Was it this scenario, this news story from Australia? What, what was the beginning, uh, the genesis of the novel for you? Yeah, the news story from Australia was certainly what sparked the idea and got the ball rolling. And then pretty immediately I found Piper. Um, and then I just had this scene in my mind of this very small town and these people kind of walking on the sidewalk, everybody knowing each other, and everybody waving and shouting hello to a man who was not there. Like I could picture that perfectly. And that was so unique and funny to me that I knew that, that this was going to be my next novel. Um, and then I immediately knew that I needed a very remote, uh, you know, a, a city town, very small, very remote, very isolated for all the reasons that we mentioned. Um, and that's when I remembered Smith Island. Um, mm -hmm. And I knew that I would, you know, pretty immediately create my own fictional island um, to be the setting setting for this book. So it was it was organic and then but it was really quick as soon as that spark hit me it snowballed pretty quickly. Has that been your experience with the earlier novels as well the sort of perfect storm of, of scenario and characters and location or, or has it been different each time? I think it's kind of followed that trajectory each time, but but sometimes a longer span of time to kind of get to that that final. Oh, I know I can visualize this, and I know exactly what this is when I start. Um, but definitely, I always start with that weird spark premise idea that that I kind of I have to have this feeling of I love that idea. It's very strange, but I have no idea how I'm going to pull that off. And it's a little bit scary, but I, but that's what gets me excited about it, the challenge of trying to figure that out and make it believable for the reader. Does that, you know, I mentioned earlier that, that um, there's, there's an element of romance, and that's certainly one genre that, that you occupy with your novels, but they, they seem to occupy so many genres as well, and that invites readers from, from different categories, although I suspect it may be a bit frustrating to your publisher and publicist uh, because the, uh, the business runs not on what things are but what they're like, so being able to, to compare a novel easily to, to sort of put it immediately into one category is sort of central to the book selling aspect of publishing, even if it's not central to the storytelling aspect of publishing. But how do you define 
the genres of your novels? What would you like to see them categorized as? Yeah, I mean, if I could create this category, I would shelve them <laughs> under unconventional love stories. Because, like um, you know, they are, they're certainly love stories. They're, there's um, love of some kind or another, even if it's not romantic love, always. Um, but, you know, the, the, the branding and the, the marketing piece is challenging because um, I, I think it's also hard for readers who maybe are hardcore romance readers to pick up one of my books and they want a certain story arc, um, you know, that, that runs out exactly how they are used to it running out in a, in a romance. And my books don't necessarily follow that arc, so I think it can be quite frustrating to some people not quite knowing what they're getting <laughs> when they pick up one of my books. <laughs> And hopefully a pleasant surprise to other readers. <laughs> I, I would say so, given the, the following you're developing, and, and you certainly have many fans among my circle of friends, uh, a lot of folks excited about the podcast tonight have in, enjoyed um, them about their experiences reading this novel and some of your earlier ones as well. Uh, and some of those, uh, some of those readers in my circle of friends, just to make a transition here, are members of the Pulpwood Queens Book Club, which is where you and I oh. met for the first time. <laughs> so I'm curious about your immersion into that world and, and what the Pulpwood Queens uh, have come to mean to you at this point in your writing life. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I knew of the Pulpwood Queens um, many years before. I was able to go to a to a finally go to one of the the conferences one of the weekends and it was like a huge goal of mine it was so funny you know I was in my first like big marketing meeting for my first book and you know everybody's sitting around like well what do you want what are your goals and I'm sure they expect you to say you know I want to be in People magazine and I want to be on the New York Times bestseller list and I said I want to be invited to the Pulpwood Queen weekend because it looks like so much fun all of these authors and readers you know talking about books and um, partying together and dancing and it just looks like the best time so yes when I got to go to that uh, weekend and and I got to meet you it was it was a very uh, special fun time for me <laughs> um, but in general just I think the community that they have built that Kathy has built um and, you know, being able to connect with so many readers who genuinely love books and reading as much as I do um, has just been incredible. I mean, just being in, in this industry, period, is incredible and being able, I think book people are the best people on earth. And I know I'm biased in saying that, but. <laughs> <laughs> there are some mighty nice people out there in the book world. In, in the grand scope and certainly in the <clears throat> smaller uh, aspect of it that is the pulpit queens. Not that the pulpit queens are that small. It's the, the for those uninitiated in our, our among our listeners tonight, it's the largest meet and discuss book club in the United States, chapters in all 50 states and overseas, including one in our own Beaufort, South Carolina that meets in the Conroy Center. And as you say, there's this wonderful element of fun and joy that is that is part of those gatherings, certainly the, the monthly meetings and the annual Girlfriends Weekend in Jefferson, Texas as well. But those women 
go out of their way to look out for each other near and far year round. The, the, the camaraderie, the support system that, that brings into their lives, their reading lives or otherwise, is just remarkable to see. It's, it's an amazing support network that, uh, that Kathy Murphy has put together in the guise of a book club, but it's so much more than that as well. Absolutely. There's a, a young writer I work with here in Buford, our Conroy Center student intern, a, a award-winning writer, Holly Perryman, and she got to co-present with me at the virtual Paul Foot Queens Convention this past January. And I was trying to explain to a 16-year-old what the Paul Foot Queens uh, is, and it's not going particularly well. Uh, but then I said that you get to wear a tiara, and she was told from that point. The rest of it didn't matter. So, you know, there <laughs> there are selling points for many different ages, I would say, into the Paul Food Queens. But uh, let's talk a little bit more about the readers that, that you have been able to see um, on tour for this book, because it came out about two months ago <clears throat> in late May just as we were, were starting to make the pivot and return to the possibility of in-person events, outdoors, to a limited degree, indoors as well. So you have been, um, as I think I said, in our virtual green room, sort of the, one of the canaries in the coal mine to, to go out there and lead the way as to what a, a, uh, an author tour might look like as we're sort of coming out of this side of the pandemic. So what have, what have your book tour experiences been like in these two months? Yeah, so it's been about half virtual, maybe a little bit more half than half virtual, you know, Zoom events for in conjunction with uh, different independent bookstores. And then I have been able to do a few in-person events. I had a big outdoor launch party um, at the end of May that a lot of people in my town outside of Atlanta um, came to to celebrate the, the launch of the book. And then I had a few, I had a few sidewalk signings where I sit outside of the bookstore and um, people can come up and, you know, we can talk outside safely. Um, and then I have had um, one, two luncheons where people are, you know, coming and, and, and eating lunch and I'm giving, giving a chat. And um, so, I, you know, it's been, I've been very comfortable and safe. I think people have been very excited to get out again and see people in person. Um, that's been really really fun. There's been a level of enthusiasm that I have not seen on a book tour before because I think yeah. people are just so happy to be out of their house. I try to pretend <laughs> it's for me. They're just so happy to see me, but I think they're just happy to be out of their house. <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel very lucky that, that my book came out at a time when I when I have been able to at least do a few in-person events. But on the flip side, I think you know, if you're going to look at silver linings from the pandemic, the great thing um, with author tours is that now I can actually reach and talk to people all over the country that, that perhaps I would not have been able to see before because they can just click on to the Zoom, um, you know, and connect and ask questions. And, and so I think that's kind of a benefit. And I, I do think that we'll see some more kind of hybrid events going forward. I think now that we have discovered that there are folks out there who are, are willing and enthusiastic to join a virtual event, uh, particularly those who would not, for a variety of reasons, be able to attend the equivalent in-person event, mm -hmm. that that's going to be a part of what we do moving forward. That, that's certainly been our experiences at the Conroy Center, where largely because of the pandemic, because we leaned heavily into virtual programming, 
we went from being a, a mostly regional community to being a national and in many ways international community. In the, in the workshop we're hosting right now, we have people from and I think only one uh, person who is from Beaufort County, we are physically, an instructor is not physically present in Beaufort County tonight either. That would not have been possible. I mean, that's not a world we would have, we would have gone into and explored had it not been for the pandemic. Right, And right. so first time I gave a virtual tour of the Conroy Center, and I had participants from, uh, from Europe, from uh, Paris specifically. I thought, well, we're just going to do this. Well, now that we have these connections, lose them, and, and virtual is like all of that possible. That said, there's undeniably a, a level of enthusiasm among those who are now able to attend in-person events of any kind. Again, uh, we're certainly mm-hmm. seeing that in Buford, and I'm so glad that's been of your reception uh, back into the world on this book tour as well. Yeah, yeah, me too. So, I feel, like I said, I feel really lucky. It's been, it's been a good experience. So as you're coming through that, you are, uh, I presume, beginning to write or, or you already did to writing uh, book number five. Are you willing to share a little bit about how it's going? Yeah, I'd love to. I'm actually really excited. I just finished the first draft um, of book number five. I think uh, they said it's going to be out. We have some time. It'll be out uh, February 2023, so about a year and a half. From now, mm-hmm. um, and would you like a little snippet, a little teaser of the book? <laughs> I would love that. I would absolutely love that. So the title is The Mostly True Story of Tanner and Louise. And Louise is an 84-year-old suspected international jewelry thief. And oh, wow. <laughs> Tanner is a 21-year-old college dropout who... Uh, through various circumstances, ends up being Louise's caretaker, um, though she would much rather not be the caretaker of a geriatric 84-year-old. Um, and she, they both end up on the lam from the police, and Tanner is trying to figure out who Louise actually is. That sounds like an amazing scenario. What, what, what has been prompted this? What was the jumping off point in your research or your own experiences that led to this particular pairing? Yeah, so this actually, this whole story idea came from um, a personal experience. My grandmother, who I was very, very close to, she passed last February, um, right before the pandemic started. Um, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Um, She actually had late onset Parkinson's for the, for the last three to four years of her life, you know, that progressively um, got worse. And in dealing with that, she was taking a, you know, they give a whole cocktail of medications to deal with all the symptoms for Parkinson's. And the side effects of those medications are, you know, kind of wild. A a lot of hallucinations, a lot of weird dreams. You can't tell if it's real or not. And so she started to believe things that were really out of left field. She would say things like, uh, you know, did you pay that $4,000 in gambling debts that I had? Um, or she would say, like my aunt would come into the room and she would say, Wendy, you're out of jail. You know, you, you've been in jail for killing that man. <laughs> and like I said, my family likes to laugh. And I know my grandmother would have thought this was hilariously funny, um, the, thing, the scenario she was coming up with. But I started thinking, 
what if she had lived like this crazy double life and it's all just coming out now? Like it was this big secret. <laughs> she was a gambler or, you know, whatever. So um, I just got in my mind, like, what if there was this 84 year old woman who may have lived this crazy double life and it all starts to catch up with her uh, toward, toward the, toward the end when she thinks maybe she's gotten away with it all. And that's what, what sparked the the idea for that one and got the ball rolling. <laughs> that is a very exciting scenario. And what a wonderful way to honor your grandmother too with this, uh, with this kind of storytelling. It, you know, and it really was, it was quite cathartic, um, you know, having lost her and, and, you know, dealing with the pandemic, my gosh, I mean, we all needed some kind of catharsis during that as well. And I just, it felt like every day I got to spend a little bit of time with her, which was really cool. Mm, I bet that was quite therapeutic. That's a, a beautiful experience to have. Yeah. Our, unfortunately, our hour is nearly up here. So if we can, let's give folks a way to keep up with you and they, they are alerted as things progress with your forthcoming novel as well and can keep up with whatever else you might be doing in the way of, of events for the invisible husband of Frick Island also. So you have website, you have social media, anything you want to want to plug in this particular moment? Yeah, yeah. So my website is uh, very easy, ColleenOakley.com, um, where you can link on over to all of my social on on instagram and facebook i am at writer colleen oakley and on twitter just to keep it spicy and different i am at oakley colleen (laughs) there we go lots of ways to follow you and i believe the uh the interview that you did earlier this week with emily giffen is still linked through your instagram feed and folks can click on over from there and watch a really enjoyable hour if you watch it with the sound off, it kind of looks like a wine commercial for about half of it. But it was uh, a really lively conversation. I enjoyed watching it earlier today. And I've certainly enjoyed this conversation with you tonight, Colleen. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. I've, I've Thanks enjoyed for having the novel and the conversation. Thank you. I had a great time. I appreciate it. You're so welcome. I will be back here on this show, live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center, next on July 21st with another early author, coincidentally, uh, New York Times bestselling horror writer, Grady Hendricks. Uh, we'll be discussing Grady's new novel, The Final Girl Support Group, and we'll also be hosting Grady in person sometime around Halloween in beautiful Beaufort, South Carolina. You can keep up with everything that we're doing at the Pat Conroy Literary Center through ConroyLiterarySenter.org. And big thanks as always to Pam Stack and the authors on the Air Global Network for making this monthly possible. Thanks again to our guest tonight, Colleen Oakley, and you all take care out there. Mm-hmm.